Well, uh, my wife Sarah and I, we're now of that age where we uh, kind of enjoy perusing second-hand bookshops when we visit small towns uh, on our travels. Recently in the holidays, when we had a week to ourselves, we did that for a day or two. And whenever we do go to one of these bookshops, I always like to go to the religion section and see what strange little gems I can find there or church growth fads of bygone days that I can uncover. There's the inevitable handful of copies of The Purpose Driven Life that seems to be everywhere. There's that uh, 1988, I don't know if you remember that one, the bicentennial Good News Australia uh, translation with those half-finished Mr Squiggle pictures of biblical scenes. There's lots of them. Often the presence of these kind of old Christian books is uh, a byproduct of church decline. As one little rural church will close its doors, its small library of books is donated to the op shop. So I was saddened recently in one bookshop to find a first edition copy of John Chapman's Know and Tell the Gospel, which I promptly bought for a dollar, which was a bargain. How could a church that once had this remarkable evangelism training resource end up closing its doors? Well, my assumption is that they stopped doing what Chapo's book said to do, to know and tell the gospel. Last week, Paul directly addressed several small household churches with many members that he knew by name. I wonder if they know the security of the gospel that he outlined at length. Can they tell it in defence against those who oppose it? And they're questions for us today as well, aren't they? We know each other by name, but do we each know the gospel? Do we tell each other the gospel? Do we make it known amongst ourselves so that we can resist those who oppose it? Do we make it known by telling the gospel to those who are perishing? As we close our time in Romans today, we will learn of the urgency to keep our church doors open by knowing and telling the gospel. Now, it might seem a little odd here for Paul to... uh, offer these words of warning at the very last minute when he's now kind of in the middle of just sending out final greetings. His warnings in this passage are about those who threaten the unity of the church. And so we might think that Paul has that division over the food laws and sacred days from chapter 14 in his mind here. However, it seems very much that in this warning passage, Paul is speaking of evil deceivers people who don't believe the gospel. And that certainly wasn't the case uh, with the weak or the strong in faith in chapter 14. Both of them were in Christ, Paul argued. And so they were to be at peace with one another and accept one another. See, it's more likely that as Paul recounts all those names from last week's passage, as he goes over the structure of that Roman church, which was really a series of smaller, interconnected house churches. As he sends these greetings out, it's really apparent that there is no clear leader here. As we saw last week, the Roman church was kind of a self-starter pop-up. So without that definitive direction, these small home churches could easily be infiltrated by outside deceivers and they could then become divided against one another. So Paul closes his letter today by first outlining how to know those who don't tell the gospel in verses 17 to 20. Then he returns to his personal greetings, telling us of those who know the gospel in 21 to 23, before finally knowing and telling the gospel to us all 
and verses 25 to 27. Well, the situation, as far as Paul sees it, is drastic. They must be on guard against the false teachers. Paul urges the Romans in verse 17 to watch out for them. The Greek word is skopeo, which is what, just to scope them out. Kind of like a sniper watching from a distance, ever vigilantly seeking his target. And Paul characterises these false teachers in verse 17. He says that they are those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Now, the grammar in the Greek suggests that Paul has a specific type of false teacher in mind here, one that could disrupt the church in Rome. If we remember that Paul had been writing from Corinth on the back of dealing with Jewish controversies in that church, and especially also the church in Galatia, it may well be that Paul is thinking of some of those Jewish movements that sought to corrupt the gospel by preaching works of the law as also necessary to be saved. They were pretty divisive obstacles uh, in those churches in Galatia and Corinth. But we can't really be certain who Paul had in mind when it came to Rome. We can be pretty sure, however, that they weren't yet in Rome. Paul doesn't call for any church discipline to be applied. Rather, he just wants the Romans to urgently keep watch. So what should they be looking for? Well, false teachers effectively seek to undo the work of the gospel, the gospel that Paul preaches and has made known to the Romans. Paul has preached a gospel that heals divisions. In chapter 10, verses 12 to 13, up on the screen, it says, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A false teacher, on the other hand, will create divisions in the face of the gospel. Paul has preached a gospel that smooths over stumbling blocks like observing sacred customs. In chapter 14, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The false teacher, however, will order up obstacles to the righteousness, peace and joy that flow from the gospel. In verse 18, Paul tells us of two more distinguishing marks of these deceivers. He says they are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Now, I'm not sure that the false teachers here were doing it specifically for a feed, but they were certainly out there to satisfy their own ego. And whether they were in it for food or for fame... They were not serving Jesus Christ as Lord. And on top of that, they feed with flattery on the naive. They devour them with deception. This may well be why Paul appeals to the obedience of the Romans there in verse 19. They know the truth of the gospel. Everyone has heard about that, and so Paul rejoices. But at the same time, everyone has heard about the church in Rome. Paul's heard about them all the way in Corinth. Paul has heard of it, and so perhaps the travelling tricksters have heard of them too. Those vulnerable homes in cosmopolitan Rome would be ripe pickings. Did they have members set apart as teachers who could recount the testimony of the gospel narratives in these homes so that they could equip the church with this truth? 
Perhaps they did. We're not entirely sure. Although remember last, last time Paul said in chapter 15 that he was convinced that they were full of goodness, filled with knowledge, competent to instruct one another. But whatever the situation was, now on top of all that, they have Paul's letter. A letter which draws the wisdom of God's law to its pinnacle. Romans 10 says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And indeed, what Paul has written them will certainly equip them in the task of Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So now Paul urges them in verse 19 to not just blindly obey, but to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The obedience that comes from faith has been a repeated idea in this letter. And so the Romans should be all the wiser about their faith. And this will protect them against the flattering deception of false teachers. Knowing the gospel all the more will keep them innocent from evil, but certainly not ignorant of it. Jesus' words from Matthew 10 to his disciples as they face opposition perhaps lie in the background here where Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And in case Paul needed to be any clearer about who these false teachers really serve, he reminds the Romans in verse 20 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God who makes peace with us through Christ will soon crush Satan, will soon crush the one who disturb, of those who disturb the peace of the gospel, will soon crush the one that they are truly serving. This crushing will be soon, Paul says. Maybe he expects to come and knock some heads together when he arrives from Jerusalem. Or most likely, the imminence of this crushing reflects the reality that we live in the last days. The first promise of Satan being crushed was all the way back in Genesis 3.15, that gospel whisper, and it has come to pass. Satan did strike Christ's heel, but Christ crushed him underfoot at the cross. Satan is now in his death throes. He reminds me of the brown snake that I ran over last summer. The, the timing was such that along the Coolman Road, I hit him just below his head. And as I looked in the rearview mirror, the snake was writhing on the road in a flurry of anger and pain. Now, if you weren't careful and you got close, he'd still have bit you. But he wasn't going anywhere. His time was up. And so too now, all that remains is for Christ to return in judgment and throw that serpent into the lake of fire. So keep watch, Paul says. Now, keeping watch in our context is probably not going to involve people infiltrating our church and telling us that the resurrection is a myth or that it's not really that important. That does happen. And there are church leaders the world over who have so far gone in that delusion they've taken whole denominations with them. The false teaching that we're more likely to be susceptible to is the smooth talk and flattery that preys upon our naivety. Not stroking our ego, but certainly appealing to our sense of compassion, empathy, sympathy. Many of the contentious matters that have faced the church in the last decade or so, they've gained a foothold when we have been told 
But the only compassionate response is to be accepting. Matters of bioethics, social justice issues, our heartstrings are pulled at, urging us to realise that our view of God, his gospel, his sovereignty, his design, well, they must at core be evil and misguided. And if we really had a heart for the lost, well, then we'd offer our blessing to these social issues. It's an emotive angle that flatters us. It appeals to our better character and it's powerful. It's powerfully deceptive, especially if we haven't taken the time to read and think and pray deeply about how the gospel is actually good news, good news for those who face the turmoil of identity crisis or the disordered affections of their heart and their longings for companionship or the uncertainty of how to deal with a life already begun or one that is coming to a slow and agonising end. These are tinderbox topics and we fear being the bad guy. So when our better self is appealed to, if we haven't examined ourself through the gospel, well then we will be deceived and we'll deceive others. And when that happens, we're going to set obstacles and divisions before our church. I deal with a lot of these questions and challenges in my year 12 ethics classes and and when you cut through the emotion, you find that the reasoning behind these topics is really driven simply by an avoidance of personal discomfort at any cost. The logic is shallow, the ethical imagination is limited, and the personal turmoil that grips some of my students when they're faced with the deficiencies of those cultural ideas they've put their hearts in, well, it's heartbreaking to see. And that's when I'm filled with compassion for the lost, for those who have been deceived. So my encouragement to you is to Know the gospel well. Read books and articles that apply the gospel well to those issues that may deceive you. Talk and pray with other Christians about how you're going to face those difficult conversations in your workplace. And be vigilant against those that might deceive you by knowing the gospel all the more so that you can tell when someone's not telling it to you. Know that Jesus' resurrection is not just a message of salvation but of redemption. With him as risen Lord and as his presence implanted in your heart by the Spirit, there is a redemption of body and soul that can see us come to the the difficulties of this fallen world with a renewed mind. And then we can go out into this world with a body that is strengthened to stick by and have active and tangible compassion for those who suffer the anxiety, the dislocation or the guilt that is left in the wake of of each of Satan's deceptive death throes. Well, now that Paul has given his warning about knowing those who don't tell the gospel, he returns to his personal greetings and he tells of those with him who do know the gospel. He speaks uh, from verse uh, 21 of Timothy, his co-worker, who's the same Timothy who co-authored the letters with Paul. He's the ministry apprentice he writes to in 1 and 2 Timothy. We'll come to know more of his name as John picks up the second half of Acts from next week. Some other names we'll learn of are Jason, who's probably the same guy who hosted Paul and other gospel workers in Thessalonica. Sosipater is a name we don't really give to our babies anymore, but he's another ministry partner of Paul's, probably from Berea. Lucius could be Luke, the gospel writer, but we're not really sure. 
There's every likelihood, though, that these four gospel workers are at the moment accompanying Paul to Jerusalem to deliver those funds from the Greek churches. These fellow Jews of Paul, as he calls them, they would no doubt help him present a united front in ensuring that the donation is well received by those leaders in Jerusalem. In verses 22 to 23, Paul lists some Gentile names. Tertius has been Paul's scribe for this letter. What a privilege that would have been to have heard these words emerge for the very first time and to inscribe them so that the church can have them today. Gaius is most likely a Corinthian who's been playing host to Paul as he writes and he sends his greetings. And from what Paul says there, he sounds like a man who's exercised his ministry of hospitality quite widely in Corinth. We don't know who Cordus was, but Erastus was a high-level city official in Corinth. In fact, there was an inscription of him as such uh, that was found in Corinth by archaeologists a little over 100 years ago. He's also been a travelling supporter of Paul's ministry. He pops up in Acts and in 2 Timothy. And with his position of authority and wealth, uh, Erastus was most likely a patron of Paul's. Now, these Gentile Christians all have varied roles, don't they? Yet, like the kinship of verse 21 that Paul had with his Jewish figures, well, in verse 22, these guys greet, uh, greet the Romans in the Lord. And in verse 23, they are brothers. It's clear that Paul's uh, knowledge of these men is not tied to any particular ethnicity or their social status. Rather, it's their common faith in the gospel that sees Paul united to them. Each of them know the gospel and they partner with Paul in it. Some partner through the work of proclamation, some through writing, some through hospitality, some through the ministry of giving. Whatever it is, this is how their true knowledge of the gospel is made known, through their genuine works of service. Not the lining of their own pockets or serving their own appetites, like the false teachers of verse 19. Paul tells of those who know the gospel because they live out the gospel according to the grace that God has given them in their various ministry giftings. As we do seek to expand our paid ministry staff in the future, or or even when we ask someone to come on any of the many rosters that abound in our church, we must seek first to be able to tell if someone knows the gospel. And how do we tell that? Well, we know a brother or sister by their works. The false teachers seek to divide and fracture our fellowship for their own ends. But a genuine gospel guy or gal will want to serve the body and its glorious, unified diversity. There's the old saying about needing to discern the uh, conviction, the character and the competency of those you seek to put into positions of ministry in the church. And character is going to be determined by the way someone articulates their faith, their conviction, their knowing of the gospel. And you'll see character and conviction in the way they live out their faith, that is, in their competencies, their telling of the gospel. We know someone as a brother or sister in the Lord by the extent to which the character of the Holy Spirit characterises their convictions and their competencies. And that means taking the time and the patience to get to know someone. The model here in Romans of a trusted brother vouching for another uh, brother should be a part of the process as well. Discerning those who serve the body with the gospel means seeking the discernment of the body, doesn't it? 
And I pray that we will do that all the more amongst the body here at St. Aidan's. Well, finally, what we must do all the more is to know and tell the gospel, which is how Paul closes his letter in these last three verses. And these last three verses are actually just one remarkable, jam-packed, extra-long sentence of praise to God. Paul had opened his letter hoping that he would see the Romans soon. In chapter 1 he says, So that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And now he closes by acknowledging in verse 25 that the Romans being made strong is the work of God. He is the one who is able to establish them in verse 25. That is, to strengthen them, to make them firm. And in verse 25, God establishes them in accordance with the gospel. And the gospel's power is revealed through its proclamation. That's its being told to others. This is also how Paul began his letter. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now in verse 25, that is the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past that Paul speaks of. It's not that the gospel's hiddenness meant that it was nonsensical, but rather that its power could not be experienced until Jesus revealed himself as the Christ. And this power is something that is not grasped hold of until we grasp all of the gospel, until we know all of the gospel. Tony Payne had a very helpful article about gospel clarity recently, and he made the critical point about knowing the content of the gospel. I've got a lengthy quote here. He says, The big newsflash, announcement, or gospel of the New Testament is not that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It's that the Jesus who died on the cross for sins rose again as the Lord and Christ of the world and now offers forgiveness and salvation and eternal life to all those who repent and submit to his rule in faith. That's what the apostles went around proclaiming. Their big announcement was that the crucified Jesus had been raised by God and thus proven and declared to be the Christ, God's promised worldwide ruler and judge in the line of David, whom death could not defeat and who would reign forever over God's kingdom. When we see the title Christ given to Jesus, this is what is being proclaimed about him. The gospel then is not Jesus crucified, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. The one who was crucified has now risen as God's worldwide king and judge, Christ. He now calls on everyone in the world to turn back to him in repentance and to receive forgiveness of sins on the basis of his atoning death. And friends, that, of course, is what Paul is testifying to in verse 26. The testimony of this gospel is made known in the prophetic writings, he says. That's God's promise to Abraham of blessing to the nations. That's Isaiah's message of the suffering servant whose beautiful feet would see the salvation of our God go out to the ends of the earth because the servant's suffering would be an offering for sin. And then as Isaiah says, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Many nations will be justified through Jesus' death 
and resurrection. Proclaiming the message of God's Christ, Jesus the risen worldwide King and Judge, this is done so that in verse 26, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. And so Paul's praise lifts to God because he is the one who is able, verse 25, and he is the only wise God, verse 27. He's the one whose wise plan is now to be told to all the nations so that all might know the gospel and give God the glory forever. They are to give this eternal glory through Jesus Christ, whose person and work bring God's wisdom and power to bear. When we look closely at how Paul describes the gospel message here, it is clear how it stands in stark contrast to the work of the false teachers. False teachers put obstacles in our path, but the gospel is revealed, its truth made clear. False teachers create divisions amongst the church, but the gospel draws all of us, Jew and Gentile, together as one. False teachers deceive with flattery, leading us astray, but the gospel draws us to obedient faith into the wisdom of God. And so do not stop knowing this gospel, because it is not just head knowledge, it is the power of God to be saved through Christ's death and to live a transformed life in his resurrection. Tony Payne went on to close saying that this gospel drives us to pursue holiness. We now live a completely new life under the lordship of the risen Christ. We are now raised with him, and so we put off everything that belongs to our old earthly selves and put on the new life of the resurrection age in Colossians 3. This gospel gives us assurance and hope because we know the one who died to justify us by his blood, well, he now lives and he reigns as God's Christ and he will surely save us from God's wrath on that last day, as Romans 5 says. So, friend, know this gospel that transforms your life and tell this gospel to one another. Proclamation, proclaiming, it's what we are called to do and we must do it for one another to avoid our church library ending up at an op shop. So don't stop telling each other the gospel, especially speaking its wisdom into life's difficulties. Speaking Christ's sacrifice into the costliness of our relationships, Christ's endurance into our suffering, speaking Christ's righteousness into the slander we're enduring in our workplace, Christ's reconciliation into the conflict in our homes, speaking Christ's redemption into our need to pursue renewed habits in our daily Bible reading, Christ's hope into the evangelistic conversations that we've been having with that friend or co-worker. Don't stop speaking the gospel. As the writer of the Hebrews says, encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. And may we do this in glorious praise to the only wise God, our Saviour, who through the death, resurrection, appearance and ascension of Jesus the Christ establishes us so that we might continue in the obedience that comes from faith. And it is to him that the glory is given forever as we know and tell his gospel. Amen.